This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So, um, inspired by Father Andrew's talk this morning, I want to open our talk uh, with a prayer that is the collect for today's Mass. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Grant, O Lord, that we may always revere and love your holy name, for you never deprive of your guidance those you set firm on the foundation of your love. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay. So, last time that I got to talk at you, I proposed that there is a loose sense in which our priestly fatherhood does conform us to the person of the Father, right? The Father is constituted within the Trinity by the relation of paternity, right? He is who he is fundamentally is the begetter. And insofar as we are priests, insofar as we are spiritual fathers, we too are spiritual begetters, right? Our priesthood is entirely oriented towards and given over to the work of bearing spiritual fruit. And yet, that's only a loose conformity to the person of the Father, because while the Father is, is the begetter within the Trinity, he's not just the begetter, right? He is also the unbegotten begetter, right? He is the spirator, but he's not just the spirator. He's the unspirated spirator. And insofar as we can say both of those things, we can join them together to say that the Father is within the Trinity the principle of the Godhead. And yet he's not just the principle of the Godhead, for he is the unprincipled principle within the Godhead. And we said that's the doctrine of the monarchy of the Father, right? That the Father is the source of divinity within the inner life of the Trinity itself. And so he is the author of the divine person of the Son and the divine person of the Spirit. And in that sense of fatherhood, we are not conformed to his person because our priesthood is a gift that we receive. And it's a gift that we received principally on the day of our ordination, but it's a gift that we continue to receive every day in which we live that priesthood out. And so I suggested that it's more proper to say that our priesthood our spiritual fatherhood is a conformity to the person of the Son, for the Son is the principled principle within the Trinity, and that's what our priesthood is like. So assuming that as a basis, I want to now move forward. And in this talk, I want to explore a little bit more deeply how our priesthood conforms us to the person of the Son. And so what I want to do is basically three things. First, I want to consider for a little bit Christ's own priesthood. So how is it right to say that there is priesthood in Christ? Then I want to look at our conformity to Christ's priesthood by a way that might seem counterintuitive, but at least is um, keeping in form with my first talk, 
namely by looking at heresies, ways that we can get the person of the son wrong. And then I want to suggest, maybe counterintuitively, that there are actually a number of pastoral priestly parallels between Christological orthodoxy and a right understanding of our priesthood and Christological heresy and a wrong understanding of our priesthood. So um, hopefully that's not crystal clear because I want there to be some reason for me to keep talking. So let's start with Christ's own priesthood. Here is what I find to be a really striking passage from Aquinas' Summa Theologiae, where he explains precisely what he thinks priesthood in general is all about, and precisely why he thinks Christ's priesthood is the paradigm of all priesthood. He says, the proper role of a priest is to be a mediator between God and the people. The proper role of a priest is to be a mediator between God and the people. And I was delighted that is exactly what Father Andrew said this morning. And the parallel between St. Thomas and our own dear Father Hofer um, gets clearer as the passage goes on. So the proper role of a priest is to be a mediator between God and the people. He does this by, one, bestowing divine things on the people, two, offering the people's prayer to God, and three, by somehow making satisfaction to God for their sins. And this is most true of Christ. For through him we become partakers of the divine nature, and in him the human race itself has been reconciled to God. For as Colossians 1.19 says, in him all the fullness was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things. So notice uh, just exactly the way that Father Andrew talked about the upward mediation and downward mediation, right? The, the way that it's so elegant in Latin, just per dominum nostrum, right? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. In the Latin, it communicates both directions, right? And yet in English, we often will um, paraphrase in one direction or another, right? So grant this, we ask through our Lord Jesus Christ, that's the downward, or we ask through our Lord Jesus Christ, the upward. But both of those directions of mediation are right there in Aquinas' understanding of what priesthood in general is about. So he thinks the priests of the old law fulfilled these roles. And even more perfectly, um, the priests of the new law, we can fulfill these roles precisely because our priesthood is nothing other than a participation in the perfect priesthood of Jesus Christ, the one who, in his very person, fulfills those priestly functions. And there was another thing that Father Andrew said this morning um, that is that he said in passing, and I want to sit with for a little bit. Namely, that Christ is a priest in his humanity. Christ is a priest in his humanity. And so here's what St. Thomas says. He's very explicit about this. Jesus Christ was not a priest insofar as he was God, but rather insofar as he was man. Nevertheless, 
the priest and the God were one and the same. Hence, we read in the Council of Ephesus that if anyone says that it was not the word of God himself who became our high priest and apostle, but rather someone else other than him, specifically some man born of woman, let him be anathema. Right? It is precisely insofar as the word of God, the person of the Son, takes on our human nature that the word becomes a priest. Right? It's in and through the humanity that Jesus Christ shares with us that he is a priest. And how do we know that? Well, just remember the three functions of a priest, right? The priest bestows divine things on the people. He offers the people's prayers to God, and he somehow makes satisfaction to God for the sins of the people. And in all three respects, Jesus Christ is able to fulfill those functions precisely in virtue of his incarnation, right? It's insofar as Jesus Christ assumes to himself a human nature that divine things come to men, that men's prayers are able to ascend to the Father, and that the whole human race is reconciled to God. So, just to sum up what I take to be the two take-home points here. First, Christ's priesthood is found in his humanity. And second, Christ's humanity is united within his person, right? His priesthood is located in his humanity, and his humanity is located in his person, right? The way that Jesus Christ is able to be the perfect priest is precisely because human nature has been taken up and assumed into the person of the word of God himself. So one person, the divine person, the divine word, assumes to himself a human nature in the incarnation, and it's in virtue of that human nature that he brings within his person, the unity of his person, that he's th that, that person, the word, is able to function as the perfect priest. So, if that's Christ's priesthood, then I think we need to think a little bit more carefully about how it is that we are conformed to that priesthood. And like I mentioned, I want to do that in a roundabout way. I want to start by just thinking about Christ's person, right? The person of the word. So we've already seen last time that um, the person of the Son is constituted within the Godhead by the relation of being begotten by the Father, just like the person of the Father is constituted within the Godhead by the relation of begetting the Son, so begetter and begotten. But now, when we consider Christ as our high priest, we have to move beyond the intra-Trinitarian relations and start thinking about the person of the Son in his incarnation, right? So how does this humanity, in virtue of which Christ is a priest, enter into the person who is the divine Son? And so I want to think about ways that we can get that wrong. Because if we get Jesus wrong, we get his priesthood wrong. So... Here are four Christological heresies. 
sip of coffee. Dramatic pause. I want to talk very briefly about adoptionism, Gnosticism, Nestorianism, and Monophysitism. Right? Father Jonah tried to censor me from using technical theological vocabulary, but I will not be restrained. So, adoptionism, Gnosticism, Nestorianism, and Monophysitism. So, in very broad strokes, what are these heresies? Well, I think we can think about adoptionism as the heresy that says that Jesus Christ is one person, a human person, with one nature, a human nature. And what happens, right? That one human person with one human nature at some point in his earthly life gets sort of tapped by the Father um, to become the Messiah, to become the anointed one, to become the Son. And the Son really does, from our Orthodox Catholic perspective, get scare quotes there, right? Um, now, some adoptionists will say that this happens at his baptism when the Holy Spirit descends upon him. Some will say it happens at his resurrection. Some will say it happens at his ascension. But whether you say it's baptism or resurrection or ascension, you are a heretic, okay? <laughs> right? Adoptionism just gets who Jesus Christ is wrong, right? Um, it makes him a mere man, special, uh, but not super special, right? He differs from us by degree, um, but not really in any profound or deep sense. Gnosticism, so think of adoptionism as one side of the spectrum. Gnosticism is the opposite extreme. So where adoptionism says that, here's how you should think about Jesus Christ. He's one person, a human person, with one nature, a human nature. Gnosticism says, yeah, he's one person, a divine person, with one nature, a divine nature. So where the adoptionist says that Christ is just a man, right, a better one than all others, but still at the end of the day, just a man, Gnosticism says that Jesus Christ is just God, right? And so the most extreme Gnostics would insist that Jesus Christ did not suffer on the cross, because to suffer on the cross, you have to be like a bodily mortal being. And they insisted Jesus Christ only looked like he had a body. He only looked like he was a human being. He only looked like he suffered for our sake and died. In truth, Jesus Christ is, was God, and God has no body, cannot suffer, cannot die. Now, Compared to those two rank heresies, the next two, Nestorianism and Monophysitism, are much more subtle. So the Nestorians, recognizing the error of both the adoptionists and the Gnostics, insist that where they went wrong was in thinking in just restricting themselves to the number one, right? So where adoptionists say one human person with one human nature, and the Gnostics say one divine person with one divine nature, the Nestorians say, no, the right way to think about Jesus is in twos, right? Um, Jesus Christ really has two natures, the divine nature and our human nature. And insofar as there are two natures, 
there have to be two persons. So there's the person of the Son, and there's the person of the Christ. There's the person of the Son, he's the one who has the divine nature, and there's the person of the Christ, he's the one with the human nature. And which one is the priest? The Christ. Not the Son, not the Word, right? Um, And so remember that passage from the Council of Ephesus, which it happens to be the case is the council that condemned Nestorianism, this heresy, right? The very passage from Ephesus that Aquinas quotes says this, if anyone says that it was not the word of God himself who became our high priest, but rather was someone else other than him, specifically some man born of woman, let him be anathema, right? So you can see it's striking that the way that the Council of Ephesus condemned Nestorianism was precisely keyed to Christ's ability to be a priest, right? The Nestorians say that there have to, for there to be two natures, the divine nature and the human nature, there have to be two persons, the divine person and the human person. And only the human person can be a priest, right? Only the human person can become for us our high priest and apostle. And so the Nestorians insisted that it was not the word of God himself who became for us high priest and apostle. It was the man, Jesus, right? The human being, Jesus. And so, of course, this, though subtler, is still nevertheless the wrong way to think about who Jesus is and who Jesus is for us and who Jesus is as a priest, right? Because here there is no unity to his person, right? There are these two people who seem to kind of coincide, right? You point to that Galilean and you're pointing to one person and yet the one who performs the miracles is a completely different person. So that's got to be wrong, right? It's got to be one person, Jesus Christ, who is both the eternal son of the father and the one who in virtue of being born of, of a woman, born of our blessed lady, becomes for us our high priest and apostle. So the last and perhaps most subtle of all of these heresies is that of monophysitism. So the Monophysites tried to avoid the error of the Nestorians by saying, we got to go back to one and one, right? So Nestorians said, wait a minute, adoptionism, one person who's human with one nature that's human. Gnostics said, one person who's divine with one nature that's divine. Nestorians said, we can get out of this, right? Just have two persons, two natures. The Monophysites say, okay, that went poorly. Um, So let's fix this. Let's go back one and one, but we'll do it differently. We'll say, yes, there's one person, the son, the word, Jesus, and he has one nature. It's just kind of a blended nature. It's a mixed nature. Um, It's like a cocktail of divinity and humanity, right? Um, And so they said that before the incarnation, the person of the word, the person of Jesus Christ, has the divine nature. 
And then what happens is in the incarnation, he assumes to himself a human nature that then blends with, right, becomes one with his divine nature. Um, and so our Savior, our Messiah, our High Priest is one person who has a divino human nature. And there are a lot of problems with this position. One is what does it mean, right? What, how does that make sense, right? Second is remember last night's talk. So we've got our two principles, our simplicity principle and our opposition principle. Simplicity principle says everything in God is God. Opposition says that in God, two things are really distinct if and only if they are mutually opposed. Well, on the monophysite picture of the person of Jesus Christ, after the incarnation, it looks like he has a different nature, right? It looks like he now has a nature that is a mix, a blend uh, of human and divine. So we can ask, is that, in, is that nature, that mixed nature in God? Yes. So simplicity says that mixed nature is God. Is that mixed nature opposed to the divine nature that the Father has and that the Son has? Presumably not. Otherwise, Christ couldn't have it, right? So then it looks like it follows that after the incarnation, the Father and the Son and the Spirit would also have the same mixed nature. And that's real bad, right? Because now all of a sudden, the incarnation isn't something special about the Son, which is the whole point of Revelation, that the, the incarnation is the single most unique moment in all of human history, right? It's the salvific moment because one of the Trinity, not all three of the Trinity, but one of the Trinity came and dwelt among us, right? It's also just rankly opposed to John chapter one, right? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. So, orthodoxy, right, our Catholic faith says that the way to get the person of Jesus Christ right, the way to get his priesthood right, is to understand that he is one divine person with two complete and distinct natures, right? The one person of Jesus Christ has the one divine nature that he shares with the Father and the Spirit, and he has a human nature that he shares with us. So Jesus Christ, the incarnate word of God, is one person in, human, in two natures, human and divine. So he's a priest, and he really does become, as Ephesus insists, he becomes our high priest by taking on our nature. And yet, he accomplishes his priestly role only insofar as that nature that he takes up is united in his divine person, right? So Christ is in his very person, our mediator and bridge. And remember, that's the whole point of the priesthood, right? The whole point of the priesthood is to mediate between God and man. And so insofar as our Catholic faith teaches us that Jesus Christ is one person with two whole, complete, and unconfused natures, he's able to be that bridge. He's able to mediate precisely insofar 
as we have a proper understanding of the incarnation. Okay, so I think I've shown that understanding Christological orthodoxy and avoiding Christological heresy is important for getting the priesthood of Jesus right. But you might plausibly still wonder, um, what in the world does that have to do with the practical living out of our priesthoods? Um, and I even said something stronger at the beginning of this talk. I said I was going to look at pastoral priestly parallels, right? How is any of this stuff got pastor, pastoral oomph, right? Where is the pastoral import? Well, our priesthood conforms us to Christ's priesthood, and getting Christ's priesthood right means getting Christ's person right, i.e. balancing the human and divine. So I think it stands to reason that getting our priesthood right will also involve an analogous balance between the human and the divine. So here's my proposal to you. In the practical living out of our priesthood, there are real concrete dangers that parallel each one of those Christological heresies, right? There are ways that we can fail to balance the human and the divine vocation that we have as priests practically in our lives. So this for me was the really fun part of the talk. Um, I want to give you caricatures, right? These are rank tropes, right? Um, they're not historical people. You might know approximations of these figures, but these are, um, these are poster board cutouts that I want to suggest we can put before our minds as um, examples to be avoided. So what is the pastoral priestly parallel of adoptionism? Remember, adoptionism is the view that uh, Jesus Christ is just one human person with one human nature. He's a mere man. I submit to you the trope of the worker priest, right? Again, I have no historical figures in mind, right? Um, I just want the caricature of the worker priest. This is the priest whose self-understanding of his own priesthood acknowledges no real difference between the sacramental priesthood and the common priesthood. This is someone who is excited to perform and valorize and glorify the, the lay activities of the common priesthood, and yet does not embrace his properly sacramental priestly functions. The trope of the worker priest is one who waters down the divine until nothing remains, right? Waters down the uniqueness of the sacramental priesthood until nothing remains. Now, hopefully, there are no people, there are no sacramental priests who fully embody the type of the worker priest. But even if that hope is fulfilled, and there are no such men, I do nevertheless think that the type is always going to be a temptation for us. And so I want to suggest that there's a deadly sin that's uniquely associated with the type of the worker priest. 
And that deadly sin is sloth or acedia. So St. Thomas defines the sin of sloth, and it's not like laziness in the sense that like, oh man, I just went two and a half weeks without touching my dissertation, right? That would be real bad, but that's not, properly speaking, the sin of sloth, right? Properly speaking, the sin of sloth is defined as sorrow over spiritual goods. Sorrow over spiritual goods, right? And this, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we'll all admit that we've, we've had that temptation, right? The morning where you wake up and you've got, you've got the early morning mass and, and you think to yourself like, oh, what I wouldn't give to not have to go celebrate that mass, right? What I wouldn't give if I didn't have to go hear confessions, right? What I wouldn't give if I didn't have to go be a sacramental priest. That's sloth. And the more we give in to that sort of temptation, the more we approach the type of the worker priest, right? The one who just wants to be a layman, right? I just want to live my life, right? I just want to do my own thing. And I don't want to be burdened with these responsibilities and functions of the sacramental priesthood. That, I submit to you, is a very real temptation that all of us face. And that is something like the priestly parallel of adoptions, right? It's it's the moment when our self-understanding, our own way of conceiving our identity as priests, stops wanting it to be about anything divine, right? We just want to be like everybody else. Okay, what about the opposite end of the spectrum, right? So we just looked at adoptionism in the worker priest. I think the priestly parallel for Gnosticism, where we want to say that Jesus Christ in his person is just divine with just a divine nature. I'm going to call this the robot priest, right? Um, You could also call it the, the pure priestly functionary, right? This is the guy who has a concept of what a priest is and what a priest does. And he wants to fulfill that role and nothing else. Right? Um, This is the guy whose priestly identity, his self-conception of himself as a priest, overrides literally everything else that might be a part of his identity. Right? You wipe away the humanity of the man, right? And he becomes just the functionary, just the priest. And though, again, I hope that there are no actual men who fulfill this role, nevertheless, the trope is a temptation, right? Um, And I think we often see this so I can say, you know, um, I haven't been ordained that long, right? Um, I, I more often see this in guys who are younger in the priesthood, right? And it's the guy who's trying too hard, right? He's, he's white-knuckling his priesthood, right? Um, he's got this self-conception, right? He's letting the perfect be the enemy of the good, 
right? He's got this conception about what, you know, what a good priest does, right? Um, and a good priest gives and gives and gives and gives, right? Fulton Sheen, the priest is not his own, right? A good priest is a victim sacrifice, right? And all of that is true, right? All of that is true, right? Um, but I think what this robot priest misses is that part of the sacrifice is our humanity. We have to have a humanity in which we live out our priesthood that we can slay on the altar of the cross, right? Um, and so we, we have to have interests beyond just like that of being a priest, right? We have to, we have to be able to talk about baseball, right? We, we have to be able to actually go to a baseball game, right? We, we have to live a human life that's identifiably human precisely in order to fulfill the functions of a priest, right? Um, if, if I try to make 100% of my life either the activity of the upward mediation, right, um, bringing the prayers of the people to God, or the downward mediation, bestowing divine things on the people, um, I will inevitably fail. Right? Why? Because I'm not Jesus. Right? We participate in the perfect priesthood of Christ. Um, we don't instantiate the perfect priesthood of Christ. Right? I am not a perfect priest. Right? You are not perfect priests. You're probably much better priests than I am. Right? But none of us fulfills the perfect priesthood of Jesus. Right? Jesus Christ and him alone had every human act be a salvific act. Right? Every word be a saving word, right? Leave that to Jesus, right? Recognize your own limitations. Recognize what you need as a human being, right? Just as a man in order to be able to fulfill your priestly function well, and you will fulfill your priestly function well, right? But as soon as we start denying our own humanity for the sake of living out a preconceived notion of what a priest ought to be, that's going to be the moment when we start failing in our priesthood. And here I think the deadly sin is pride, right? Where pride is properly defined as the excessive love of our own excellence, right? Our priesthood is a gift. It's something we receive from on high and that we ought to treasure. But it's something that we receive in our human nature, right? It's something that we receive in a finite, created, limited way. And so as soon as we start thinking that we can live out our priesthood in an inhumane way, right, in a way that's not realistic about the limited capacities that we all have as human beings, that's actually a moment in which we start to love our excellence as sacramental priests excessively, right? Um, we, we hold this treasure in earthen vessels, right? And to think that we can hold this treasure in an unbreakable vessel is pride, right? So um, the Gnostic priest is the one who thinks um, that his humanity is irrelevant to his functioning well as a priest. Okay, what about 
the monophysite. So remember, monophysitism says two persons, uh, or sorry, monophysitism says one person, one nature that's this mix. And here, I hope this isn't too much of a stretch, because I actually think this is very clever, but that just might be me uh, excessively loving my own excellence. Um, so here is the best definition I've heard of what clericalism really is. The best definition of what clericalism really is, is expecting reward for being a priest rather than for acting like one. Your clericalist, if you expect reward just for being a priest instead of for acting like one. And I want to suggest to you that the practical priestly parallel of monophysitism is the clericalist, the priest clericalist, right? There's a failure to recognize the distinction within his person between his, his humanity, right, his just being a guy, and his priesthood, right? For the clericalist, the priesthood has blended and mixed with his humanity to such an extent that the two cannot in principle be distinguished, right? And so insofar as the priestly dignity is a high office um, and does in fact, on its own terms per se, merit, respect, esteem, um, and reward, the clericalist, right, the, the pastoral analog to the monophysite is the one who thinks that, well, my priesthood has blended with my nature, right? This is just who I am, right? Um, when I eat a cheeseburger, I do it in a priestly way, right? When I go to a, a baseball game, I do it in a priestly way. Everything that I do, right, the priesthood is just blended through and through such that there is no human action that I engage in that is not thoroughgoingly an act of the off, my office as a priest. And insofar as everything I do, everything I am is priestly, I should be treated as such. I submit to you, that's clericalism, right? Expecting reward for being a priest rather than for acting like one. Um, the truth is we should be rewarded for acting like priests. You know, um, everyone should be rewarded um, or punished <laughs> for uh, acting or failing to act in accord with the various offices that they hold. Um, so, uh, so I am not, let me, let me be really clear here, right? Um, I am not saying that um, if you go do a house blessing, right, um, you're obligated to say no to the, the gift or compensation or something like that that the people offer you. No, that's great, right? You just acted like a priest and the people want to acknowledge that. That's good, right? Clericalism is um, expecting the gift just for being there, right? Um, okay, uh, here, the deadly sin I wanna submit to you is greed, is excessive desire for worldly goods, right? Um, the, clerical, the clericalist priest uh, is the one who just wants rewards, wants compensation, wants gifts, wants honors, wants glories, just for being who he is all the time. Last, Nestorianism, right? What is the pastoral priestly parallel to Nestorianism? 
remember Nestorianism, two persons, two natures. And here, um, so we've done monophysitism, right? Um, one person, two natures. Now, Nestorianism, two persons, two natures. And this, I think, is the, the priest with the double life, right? He's the guy who, in different contexts, acts like two completely different people. Um, and I think this is a temptation that we all kind of have, right? There's, we're so busy and there are so many demands on us that just from a kind of human psychological perspective, there's a deep temptation for us to um, not just kind of compartmentalize in the sense that that can be healthy, but hyper compartmentalize, right? Um, so you, you put the collar on, right? You walk out the rectory door and you step into your role as father, right? Um, and you fulfill the role and then all of a sudden, right, you go home, you clock out and you become a completely different guy. Um, and that's, that I think is a deep temptation for us, right? Because we, kind of like we said earlier, right? We do need to recognize our humanity, right? We, we need to find activities that are like healthy and good ways for us to recharge. And those activities are likely going to be activities other than offering mass, hearing confessions, saying the Liturgy of the Hours, right? Like, in order to do those things well, we need to do other things, right? The temptation is when we begin to do those other things to let them become a completely separate part of our life, right? Um, and that's pos it's possible for us to do that, for us to compartmentalize, um, even when the things that we're doing aren't objectively bad. Right? Um, you veg out, you watch Netflix, right? Um, you might not be watching anything bad, right? Um, but you, you start to become two different people, right? There's, um, there's you as a priest and there's you in disguise. And I think that's deeply dangerous, right? In the religious life, we often call this um, living the private life, right? Um, and I think here, the deadly sin is actually envy, right? I think the, the reason that we tend to um, kind of break ourselves into two people, right? Um, the one who's kind of the good priest and the other who's whoever the other guy needs to be. is because, So envy is sorrow over another's good, right? We see another way of life that's not ours, Right? Maybe because we're so busy, right? uh, because we have so many demands. We see another way of living that's not actually ours. Um, and we wish it were. Right? We wish that was our life. And so what do we do? We carve out a little space that's hidden away. Right? Maybe it's like that little space in the rectory that's just mine. Nobody else sees it. Um, and that can be the little place where I get to live out that life that somebody else has and I wish was mine, right? And recognizing that that's bad, right? We hide it away. We sort of squirrel it away um, and we become that guy for a little while each day. Um, and we don't integrate that 
into our broader identity. We don't integrate, integrate that into our identity as priests, and we don't even integrate that into our de just identity as me, right? As Philip Neary, right? This guy. Um, and so we, we see the good of some other way of life, and we sorrow over the fact that it's not ours. We envy that, right? And so to some extent, we get tempted to carve out a space in our own life where we can be that guy, where we can live that life, and nobody else has to see it, right? And this can happen in, in big ways, really horrifying ways, but also in, in little ways. So what is orthodoxy? What is the right understanding of um, our priesthood in conformity with the priesthood of Christ? I think it's the image of a good priest is just the image of a human being with a holy office, right? It's finding out how in our lives practically um, to neither secularize the sacred nor sacralize the secular. Right? The good priest neither secularizes the sacred nor sacralizes the secular. We recognize that both are part of who we are. Right? We've been ordained for holy things, for sacred, to be administrators of the sacred mysteries. Right? Um, and so the good priest recognizes the sacred as sacred, recognizes the secular as secular, right? Um, Going to a baseball game doesn't have to become, you know, a, an act of divine worship, right? Um, you can just go to a baseball game out of a recognition of my own limitations. I need to relax, right? And recognizing that I need to relax can ultimately be in service of fulfilling my sacred functions as a priest, but it doesn't have to become the sacred function, right? Um, so here's what Pastoris Dabovobis says, in order that his ministry may be humanly as credible and acceptable as possible, it is important that the priest should mold his human personality in such a way that it becomes a bridge and not an obstacle for others in their meeting with Jesus Christ, the Redeemer of humanity. A bridge, right? The mediation, the two-way street, right? Um, so the good priest is a priest who integrates his priesthood into his human person, right? Just as Christ integrated his human nature into his divine person. This is what we're called to do. This is how we live out concretely and practically our priesthood um, in conformity with the person of the Son. Um, so let's just make that our prayer, right? Let's beg the Lord for the grace to avoid all of the different ways in which we can go deeply wrong in understanding and integrating our priesthood into our person. And let's ask him for the grace to model that work of integration on the, the paradigm of the perfect priest, which is the person of Jesus Christ, the eternal son of the father who became in time our high priest and apostle. Amen.